0: good Sunday morning this is the Arts section I'm your host Gary Zydek welcome to WDCB's arts and culture magazine every week we spotlight creative people events and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music film theater and other creative endeavors On today's program, I'll preview a world premiere production opening in Chicago that offers a new spin on a popular holiday favorite. I'll talk to some of the people involved with Sugar Hill, the Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker. The Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal, will join me to review a new stage adaptation of Dial M for Murder. Later in the show, I'll take you with to the Driehaus Museum to check out a new exhibit titled Glass to Garden and I'll catch up with the author of a book that dives into Chicago's history of liquor production. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. A world premiere production is offering a new take on what some may consider the most popular ballet of all time. The new work, which is set to debut in Chicago this week, reimagines The Nutcracker, in a way never seen or heard before. Sugar Hill, the Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker, was supposed to open in New York last month, but that run was cancelled, so its scheduled Chicago run, starting on Wednesday, December 20th, will be the world premiere. As you might have gleaned from the title, rather than Tchaikovsky's 1892 compositions, this new adaptation moves to the beat of Ellington and Strayhorn's jazz-infused Nutcracker Suite, that came out in
1: 1960.
0: The journey to bringing this new nutcracker to life was a long and winding one. I caught up with one of the people who was there from the beginning Elise Clairbout, Billy Strayhorn's niece
2: in childhood you know he was always a mysterious person to us because we'd have family gatherings but he didn't live in pittsburgh he lived in new york and as a kid you know every time i saw a plane go over we say, uncle billy's probably flying somewhere
0: claire bout is an executive producer of sugar hill and the vice president of billy strayhorn songs incorporated
2: so it was always special when he would come to pittsburgh for christmas and so he would always come to our house my, mother's, my mother was his sister. And, um, and my father was a pianist. You know, my father was one of the pianists that knew Billy when he wrote Something to Live For. You know, okay. and those, he was a rehearsal pianist for him for one of his first productions. So they had a long-term relationship as well. So we would always go to bed Christmas Eve night. And we, it was one of those neighborhoods where you could kind of leave the door unlocked. Okay. So because his plane would land like in the wee hours and so he would come in the house and then he would start playing the piano and that was to let us know he was there. Okay. And so we'd all jump up and say, Uncle Billy's here, Uncle Billy's here.
0: Strayhorn was a composer and pianist who's often associated with his longtime collaboration with legendary band leader Duke Ellington. Though Strayhorn's genius shouldn't be underestimated, he composed Take the A-Train, Lush Life, and hundreds of other popular jazz tunes. Often overshadowed by Ellington while they were alive, Strayhorn's musical achievements have garnered more attention over the last couple decades. Claire Bout has fond memories of her uncle growing up, but she never thought of him as the famous globe-trotting composer that he was at the time. You knew him as Uncle Billy. Was there a point in your life when you, when you kind of realized... My uncle is this really talented, famous composer and musician.
2: No, uh, I I don't know that I really knew that because he was obscure from history. I mean, and jazz was dying out after the 40s. And, uh, you know, new music was coming in. So I never thought of him as being real, real famous. Because if you, if you talked about jazz, you know, and mentioned it, most people were not aware of what... And that's changing rapidly now. And one of the reasons is because... Jazz is curricularized. Mm. When I was growing up, you couldn't take a course in jazz, you know, but now every high school, you know, and so the young people are starting to get more aware. Uh, and I think this honoring Billy Strayhorn in a way, because there are other ways that he's being honored in other works that we're looking at right now. Samara Joy just got nominated for Lush Life this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we formed a company for the purpose of trying to elevate his uh, image in the 21st century. So no, I was not aware of him as, this is a famous person, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was somebody I was proud of, but I never never thought of him, oh, you know, everyone will be so impressed when I say this, because most people at that time in my age, in my generation, were not aware. Mm -hmm.
0: As she got older and spent more time with Strayhorn, she learned a lot more about his passion for civil rights.
2: In the summer of 1963, he sent me over to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is in New York, because they were the ones who were planning the headquarters to plan for the March on Washington. And I was in high school just taking typing courses, and I worked for them. You know, because he's, I'll send my niece over, she'll be over to help type for you. He was really an activist, a really great activist. He did a lot, and he used to uh, do concerts at the Connecticut home of Jackie Robinson called Freedom Summers, and it raised money for the Civil Rights Movement. He was here in Chicago at the exposition of 100 Years of Negro Progress.
0: Strayhorn met Ellington in 1938, Legend has it that he had an impromptu backstage audition. It went well, and their musical partnership continued for nearly 30 years. In 1960, they released The Nutcracker Suite.
1: What is this about you and Tchaikovsky? Because that's what you were playing before, the march oh, yeah. by Tchaikovsky for The oh, Nutcracker well, Suite. Yeah, well, I thought that uh, Tchaikovsky to Strayhorn to Ellington might be a pretty good parlay. Well, it it (laughs) certainly sounds like it's going to be a good parlay, but I know this, that if Tchaikovsky were out and had a band, he'd be playing Ellington, probably. What we want to hear now (laughs) is Ellington playing Tchaikovsky. That's our
3: cue,
2: man. Go on. Ah, ah.
0: This was uh, Duke Ellington talking to Goddard Lieberson, the then president of Columbia Records, in a televised promotional spot for the Nutcracker Suite album. Claire Bout remembers hearing some of the tunes on the album before it was released.
2: So he always brought material with him, like what was called demonstration records. Okay. And it would be works that the Ellington Orchestra was getting ready to develop to record. And so this one time he brought us the Nutcracker Suite demonstration record, and we had a lot of music in our house, so we were very familiar with a lot of the classics, so we thought, oh, this is pretty cool, you know, and then we just thought it was just really great.
0: I did read something about that 1960 Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker Suite that that was significant because it was the first time that Mr. Strayhorn got to be on the album cover with Duke Ellington.
2: Yes, that picture was taken by Gordon Parks. And, and that's the only picture of, on an album cover that I can think of that, oh yeah, and the other one was a tribute album that Duke did when Billy died and his mother called him Bill. And the two of them are on the cover. The reissues, however, changed all of that. And the reason that happened is like during the 90s. Um, When they were reissuing the album covers, they changed, like, you could get the Nutcracker Suite now and it just has Duke's picture on it. Uh And you can get, and his mother called him Bill, and it just has Duke's picture on it. And that was part of the marketing because 1999 was going to be a worldwide celebration of the centennial of Duke Ellington, see, so that kind of changed his image now.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Arts Section on WDCB. I'm talking with Elise Clairbout, Billy Strayhorn's niece and executive producer of the world premiere Sugar Hill, the Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker. It opens at the Auditorium Theater on Wednesday, December 20th. The journey that led to this new production started back in the late 90s when Strayhorn's family established Billy Strayhorn Songs Incorporated.
2: We realized we couldn't have a company unless we had access to the rights to the music because what would would our asset be, you know? Mm -hmm. We were able to get those based on the Copyright Extension Act that Bill Clinton signed into law in 1998 called the Sonny Bono Amendment. And that allowed people to retrieve, you know, uh, publishing rights of songs that were written before 1978. Um from former publishers. So, we were successful in doing that. So, and so we said, okay, now that we have the rights to all this music, what are we gonna do with it? So, we said, "Mm, we could engage a co-publisher. And the first one that we engaged was SKG, DreamWorks, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen. They did our first song books and stuff and I thought, wow, look at we got a Hal Leonard song book and you know, all this stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then we started meeting other people who were interested in, you know, doing stuff for Billy Strayhorn who were in the business. A lot of tribute albums started. And there was this one choreographer named David Rousseff. He he did a ballet at Brooklyn Academy of Music some years ago to all of to Billy's story his Billy's story and he, he did a ballet a modern ballet and we said oh this is really great and David Garfinkel was at that event and that's when we met him and he had said he would love to do a ballet that would be a story that's that was the colonel okay and so through that connection you know, he got to know us better and, and what we had and so forth and so on. He shared the idea. And we, we also met with the Ellington publishers as well, who were just as excited about that. And so he had a librettist named Jessica Swan, who actually created the, the libretto. The theme being, everyone can find their own magic. And the theme is diversity. That is the point of this particular production.
0: Music obviously plays a big role in the new production.
2: The nine movements in the Nutcracker Suite, as arranged by Ellington and Strayhorn, is the basis of it. But yes, there are other songs and titles that Ellington and Strayhorn made famous in their own right. You know, and I think like um, like Caravan, for example. You know, and th- songs that and music people will recognize. But it's woven into the story. You know, so they were selected based on how they could fit into the general theme of everyone can find their magic.
0: Alicia Mae Holloway is one of the lead dancers in Sugar Hill. She plays a character named Lena, who in traditional Nutcrackers is known as Clara. Holloway says this reimagined Nutcracker offers some surprises.
4: It has all the core values, I guess, of the Nutcracker in the the core story, but with a twist. Instead of being in Europe, being in Germany, we are in up in Sugar Hill in Harlem, um, which is super, super cool. And I think the coolest part about it is the score, the music. Um, You know, it is the Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker. So we do have some Tchaikovsky music that is traditional, but for the majority of it, we have Mr. Ellington's twist or take on the traditional Tchaikovsky score, which I think is just so beautiful because I grew up listening to jazz. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where Billy Strayhorn is from. So I grew up around jazz. My family loves jazz. I love jazz. And so for me, it's just It just makes the Nutcracker much more exciting because when people think the Nutcracker, they think ballet, they think slow music. Not necessarily exciting, but what's so great about Sugar Hill is that it is vibrant. The music, the dancers just make the whole production super different.
0: Not only will the music be different, but so will the choreography. Holloway says Sugar Hill incorporates several styles of dance
4: the dancing is much different than the traditional Nutcracker. So it's not like there's just ballet in the traditional version. It's usually just ballet dancers. But this, we have hip hop dancers. We have swing dancers. We have tappers. We have jazz dancers. We have character dance, you know, a ballet, a little bit of everything, which I that this is what I think separates Sugar Hill from any other Nutcrackers, the diversity uh, among the cast and the diversity in music, which I think is really awesome.
0: So how would you describe the choreography?
4: Oh, my God. The choreographer. I mean, we have world-renowned choreographers, um, John Buggs, Caleb Teacher, you know, Josh Goss is our director, uh, Jade Hill Christophe. We have so many amazing choreographers that there's a ballet choreographer, jazz choreographer, hip-hop, etc. And our choreographers are so great in their niche of dance that they do that it's top-of-the-line choreography throughout the show. So anything you see, whether it's jazz, hip-hop, ballet, throughout the show, it's going to be top-tier, incredible choreography and executed by incredible dancers.
0: Claire is excited to see how audiences engage with the new work.
2: This is something that everyone can relate to. And I think it's really important right now because we're in a phase in our history as a nation and as a world, you know, where people are needing are learning to talk to each other. Everything's open, you know, and it's a good reminder. I think this will be something for everybody, you know, that everyone can agree on and enjoy. That's what I think the takeaway of this production is.
0: While Claire Bout was sad to see the New York run of Sugar Hill canceled last month, she's thrilled the production will get to make its world premiere in her adopted hometown of Chicago the upcoming run here in Chicago will be the, the true world premiere.
2: It's the true world premiere, Chicago. <laughs> Chicago, yes, the world premiere is here in Chicago. Yes, and I'm, as you can see, I'm very proud of that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's Elise about. She's an executive producer of the world premiere dance production Sugar Hill, the Ellington Strayhorn Nutcracker. It makes its world premiere here in Chicago at the Auditorium Theater December 20th through the 30th. You can find more information at auditoriumtheater.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to The Art Section every Sunday on WDCB, thank you. Make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. Also, You can find my email and social media handles there. You can email me at gzydick at wdcb.org if you have a question, suggestion, or idea for the show. Or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at OnAirGary. You are listening to the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning,
5: Good Gary. Good morning, Gary.
0: Dial M for Murder was a play first, premiering in London in 1952, but most people likely know the film adaptation that came out a couple of years later, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring the always lovely Grace Kelly. The film is a true thriller with lots of twists and turns. Fast forward 70 years, American playwright Jeffrey Hatcher has updated the script with a new version of Dial M for Murder. Northlight Theater is presenting it, directed by Georgette Verdon. Carrie, so the story is pretty much the same here, but there are some contemporary flourishes.
5: Contemporary flourishes, but though I want to emphasize, still set in the 1950s, but I think some of the things that Hatcher works in might not have as well in mainstream films uh, or, you know, broader uh, pop culture at the time that Hitchcock worked. The story, for those who don't know, who haven't seen it, involves a sort of wealthy socialite whose former lover uh, is still a part of her life. And her husband, in the original uh, f- uh, former tennis pro, and this is not a spoiler because it comes out pretty early, concocts a scheme to remove her and so he can inherit her money. Many things go wrong. Many changes and twists happen along the way. In terms of the story that Jeffrey Hatcher has worked in, though, two things stand out. One is that the lover, the former lover, is another woman, not a man. So that you know, there's a big plot twist. And also, uh, the husband, instead of being a former tennis pro is a failed writer, and given that the lover is also a writer and he is the publicist for the writer, it adds this really, to me, delicious, piquant sense of professional jealousy as well as romantic jealousy. Uh, As you mentioned, this is directed by Georgette Verdon. I think Jonathan and I have both been on the record with talking about her work overall. She is the Associate Artistic Director now at Northlight, and for my money she has shown a really, really strong sensibility with building these sort of psychological thrillers, psychological tensions uh, on stage. Uh, this show is, is no exception. Um, I think it's stylish. I think it's smart. And uh, for those who are looking for something that's not exactly, you know, holiday fair, <laughs> but may in fact speak to some family dysfunction, uh, it, I, I think it's a fine, fine choice. Jonathan, what did you think?
1: Well, you know, it's not a Christmas story. But because it is so well known, principally from the movie, with not only the ever lovely Grace Kelly, but also the ever lovely Ray Miland and the ever lovely Bob Cummings. Let's not leave Just them.
5: Everyone's out of, so lovely. <laughs> but
1: let's not leave them out of the out of the road. But you know, the story is so well known from the movie that it's almost like seeing a holiday show. It has that same cozy familiarity mm-hmm. of tried and true shows we see year after year, despite the changes that Hatcher has make, made. And, you know, the changes, of course, what doesn't change is the, the basics of the mechanics, if you will, mm-hmm. of the murder plot itself and how it's spoiled. They remain the same, despite the sex change in the lover and the professional change in what Tony, uh, the bad guy, does for a living. And for me, there are changes, uh, there are differences without distinctions. So I wonder why you bother. Hatcher keeps the play in the original 1950s London setting, so why not just stage the original play? I don't know, frankly. But for all that, the production is handsomely staged, as we have said by director George Verden, whom we do admire a great deal. And uh, I think it's well-played by a a five-person cast of reliable and respected Chicago actors. You know, it's wonderful, as an example, to see Elizabeth Laidlaw move from heroic leading ladies, which she has so often played, into a slightly older character role as the other woman, as the, Mm -hmm. as the, the, the lover in the triangle, but still retaining her usual customary elegance. And ditto for Nick Sands... Taking on Inspector Hubbard, the clever police detective who foils, who solves the case. It's a character role rather than the leading man kind of role we have usually seen. Have seen him in. So yeah, I enjoyed seeing everybody enjoyed their work all that sort of thing. But uh, what, do you, what do you think, I think that about the my whole, idea? Why I, not know, just the whole, do the original? Yeah,
5: yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think the a, a key point is that this all starts with blackmail. Uh, Margot, the wealthy woman, is being blackmailed, and I think the idea of being blackmailed for a lesbian affair in the 1950s carries more weight than for a hetero affair. Maybe this is because I was just watching Notes on a Scandal last night because <laughs> the movie with Judy Dench from a few years ago. Um, so I think that's one thing. I agree. It doesn't make... Uh, a great deal of material difference to how the story unfolds. For me, it did add a little bit of an extra freeze on of like, oh, the social consequences of this might be higher than if Margot were simply having, having you know, having it on as they say with you know a, a guy from the club or whatnot. Um, I also want to point out that Lucy Carapetian as Margot, this is a different kind of role than I've seen her play, too. I've often seen her as very, uh, well, I think we reviewed her in the writer at Steep Theater earlier this year, so that's sort of interesting, two plays about writers. Um, She tends to normally play, I think, a more reactive role than I've seen her in. Um, She tends to play these very forthright, uh, very commanding types of women, um, at least what I have seen. Uh, very contemporary. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything that I would describe as a period piece. To an extent, this is. I mean, the 1950s being far enough away. And I thought she really, really did pull it off. I have not thought of her as that sort of, um, you know, sort of glamour period piece actor. But uh, it's lovely to see her in that role. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I see your point, Jonathan, like why make the changes? On the other hand, Oh, why not? <laughs> so, uh, and I think particularly the idea of Tony being a failed writer uh, adds this kind of extra. Oh, this is how I am creating a story now. I may not be able to do this on the page. I may not be able to write a great thriller the way that uh, Margot's lover Maxine has, but I can make it work in in the real world. You know, so that's sort of his hubris, um, which maybe would not be as in the forefront for somebody who was a former tennis pro. Um, so that's my take on it. But you're, of course, welcome to disagree. Well, you
1: know, you know, I just thought of a reason about why to renew this and change it. You know, this original play was, was done uh, over 70 years ago now, written originally as a radio drama for the BBC. Then it was a, a hit live on stage in London, then live on stage in New York, and then a hit movie. But that was, you know, 70 and uh, a couple of years ago. Maybe they needed to renew the copyright. So as long as we need to renew the copyright, <laughs> the estate of the original playwright, Frederick Knott, mm-hmm. said to themselves, well, why don't we see if we can brush this up a little bit? Because there haven't been very many productions of it. You know, the movie right. was so so definitive, and yet the Jeffrey Hatcher adaptation, uh, this is, is had about a dozen, pro- close to a dozen productions. Uh, in the last
5: two or two and a half years. So yeah, in fact, I think there's it, one just up it, the road at Milwaukee Rep right now, as yeah, a matter of fact. Yeah. So, so obviously
1: yeah. it's moving the compass point a little bit. Yeah. You know, I do have some design issues with this particular production. Since I lived in London in the late 1960s, and I know whereof I speak, you know, the mid-century modern furniture and the chandelier of the set design, they're gorgeous, they're handsome. But post-war London in the early 1950s, -1950s, mid-1950s, simply did not have mid-century modern furniture yet at that point. And similarly, no British businessman at that period of time would wear anything other than a dark suit and tie. And yet Tony makes his first entrance, coming home from the office, in a sports jacket and slacks.
5: And I know... I know what
1: you're going to say, Carrie You're going to say no one else
5: notices these things. No, no, I'm going to say I no, think that a guy who's a failed writer might well have some bohemian tendencies that he enacts well, in other areas of his life. Well, the, the business world would probably drive him out of out of private <laughs> <and> life. <laughs> and he works for a publisher. You're, 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 you're going to tell me that
1: nobody cares about these, detail, these, these details. But you know, I do because they affect what is called in formal dramaturgical circles verisimilitude, which is to say the truthfulness of the play. Of course, the biggest dial-M issues of believability are from the 1952 original, and neither Hitch nor Hatcher has changed them. First, the idea that all London door keys look exactly the same. And second, that months after the murder uh, plot has unfolded, uh, and 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 uh, it differently than planned, Tony, the husband, the bad guy, still hasn't reclaimed the crucial hidden key. So you know what, Carrie and Gary, if you want to see this show and enjoy it, you'll just have to suspend disbelief uh, <laughs> and take this show as a holiday treat of sorts, especially if you're tired of sugar plums. <laughs>
0: So I think what listeners might be wondering is how this new production stacks up with the the film version. Should listeners just stay home and watch the Alfred Hitchcock film?
5: <laughs> I think it's fun for the performances. I, I think everybody in the cast is really yeah. really well cast. And as I said, surprisingly cast. I've not seen Lucy Kerapatian in this kind of role. Elizabeth Laidlaw, always reliable. Nick Sands, you know, really wears the uh, the inspector's role like a glove. He's sort of this button-down, you know, by-the-book sort of guy. So you don't really know what he's thinking until he, you know, sort of tips his hand, if you will, later in, this, later in the show. Uh, a role that he absolutely seems, you know, born to play. And Ryan Hallahan, as Tony, really does capture this sort of pettish malevolence. Um, it's interesting because earlier this fall, Georgette Burden directed *Night Watch*, another thriller, I would say, perhaps of lesser quality, or at least not as well known, at Raven Theater, but had sort of similar, you know, uh, similar elements. A, a beleaguered wife, a husband who may not be what he appears to be. So she's really sort of uh, carving out a niche with doing these kinds of shows. In fact, Jonathan, I think the show you and I like was I think it was last year in the Destinos Festival enough to let the light in which is more like a psychological ghost story love story not so much a murder mystery but definitely had he- elements of uh, of the supernatural perhaps of suspense all these things can be very difficult to pull off on stage I would maintain because you don't have jump cuts you don't have close ups you don't have all the tricks <laughs> to make you know to make the audience pay attention to things at certain points And she also is just very, very good. I think it's fleshing out the relationships. I really believed, I think this is important to note, I believed in the relationship between Maxine and Margot. I did believe that they had been lovers since there is still this lingering affection. And I believed that Margot, as a woman of now of means, I think it's set up that she's inherited all this money from her aunt. Now a lady, you know, now a socialite, just doesn't have the courage to follow her heart in this time period that this is
0: set in. and I was thinking I haven't seen that this new production but I was thinking about the the film and as far as uh, I guess you couldn't really do a, a contemporary a total contemporary remake because uh, the characters would all have cell phones and you know a landline kind of place. Right. I won't right. give any spoilers, but yeah.
5: Exactly. Yeah, cell phones have really wreaked havoc, I think, with the dramaturgy of the, of the well-made thriller.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the,
5: the, the pre-show
1: announcement about, you know, no photography, no recording, turn off your cell phones, actually makes reference. To that yeah. fact.
6: So, oh, okay. Uh, they, they it's sort
5: take of. It it, so. it, it, it's sort of like John Guire's wonderful play Six Degrees of Separation, where a young based on a real story of a young man who claimed to be Sidney Poitier's son. That play can only be set in the pre-internet era because within two minutes, everybody in <laughs> the room would right. be looking up on their phone and say, "Sidney Poitier does not have a son, so who are you really?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> that's
1: what. That's what. You know. That's what tricked me up when a few years ago. When I tried to pass
5: myself <laughs> off as 50.8. <laughs> I think there difficult. might have been some other issues there too, Jonathan, but yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. leave that one alone. Okay.
0: <laughs> Dialogue for murder continues at Northlight Theater through January 7th. Gary, Jonathan, uh, happy holidays. Thanks so much.
1: Happy holidays. Happy holidays uh, and healthy holidays. Speak to you soon.
0: I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section.
2: I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside.
0: It might be cold outside, but a new exhibit at the Richard H. Driehaus Museum is in full bloom. Colorful flowers and vibrant plants fill some of the most ornate rooms in Chicago as part of the museum's new exhibit Glass to Garden Tiffany inspired floral designs. The exhibit was curated by one of the country's most innovative floral designers, Elizabeth Cronin. The florist is the founder of the popular Wicker Park flower shop, Azra Garden.
6: I started working in a retail florist. I loved it. I took to it immediately. It took to me immediately.
0: I recently caught up with Cronin at the Treehouse Museum to talk about the new exhibit and her passion for flora.
6: I was an environmental science major dropped out worked a bunch of jobs around Chicago and when I found that job I was like this fills me up in a different way and I was like instantly had an eye for it and was quite good at it and I left that job to go see what the other world of floristry the uh, non-retail floristry world so it's just like all of the event floristry world and I hated it because it was like Working, I may as well have been working in like an auto factory. It's like you put two things in and you pass it down. There's a recipe and you've got a bucket of all one type of flour and you're just like making 50, 100 of the same thing over and over. And I was like, absolutely not. That is not for me. And I was like, I want to do this differently than i've seen anyone do it before and i have the privilege of you know a mom who could co-sign my little thirty thousand dollar loan which is what it took in 1999 and you know i I opened the shop
0: as garden opened in 1999 and has been going strong ever since cronin is known nationally she was a judge on the hbo floral design competition show full bloom her connection to the Driehaus Museum came about two years ago.
6: Lisa Key, the fabulous executive director of the House, and I met almost two years ago to the day of uh, the opening of this exhibition at unfortunately, not great circumstances, but it was uh, Virgil Abloh's memorial. And I was Virgil's florist for many, many years, still am for Shannon and the kids and his family.
0: Virgil Abloh was one of the world's most respected fashion designers. He passed away in November of 2021.
6: So she watched us basically in in five days build out like like the largest like floral installation she'd ever seen. Mm. And she was just like, oh my gosh, I like having flowers of that scale. In the museum, you know, is so spectacular. Why are people not doing this? You know, museums have been doing like, Floral installations, as they call it, or they'll have like, oh, we're having a floral exhibit, but they've been putting like a pedestal in front of an art piece and being like, okay, interpret that. You have a vase and it's this much space. And that is every museum that I've ever seen try to do anything with florals. That's the extent of it. And so Lisa was like, we got to change this. And then she reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm at the treehouse. I have an opportunity. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, let's start to change the narrative about what florals are, where they belong, who gets to have access to them.
0: Did you have like a bunch of ideas of what you could
6: do? Well, Tiffany was the prompt. And so I first got to look at the Tiffany collection that they have and choose. Well, I didn't get to choose, but there, there was like a collection that I got to look at. And essentially... Um, The prompt was, here's these, you know, four rooms, we can have an artist per room. And essentially, you know, would you like to choose some Chicago artists uh, to do this exhibition with you? And yeah, that was obviously an easy yes. And then essentially, once we locked in the four artists that I asked, I, knowing each of them you know, assigned each of them the room that I thought was going to be the best fit for them, and then assigned them each a vase from the Tiffany collection and a lamp from the Tiffany collection.
0: Louis Comfort Tiffany was one of the most prolific designers of the late 19th century. His dad was the founder of the Tiffany's Jewelry Company that we all know today, but the younger Tiffany was more interested in glassmaking. He ended up revolutionizing the production of stained glass, and is known today for his windows, lamps, and other decorative items. His design aesthetic is the perfect fit for a floral exhibit, given that one of his main sources of inspiration was nature.
6: Most of his lamps in most of his large-scale pieces his you know in almost everything he's done especially with the stained glass there are floral motifs and patterns i mean even the objects are named after the floral that's in them so it's like such an easy bridge
0: if you're just tuning in i'm gary Zidek. this is the art section I'm talking to renowned floral designer Elizabeth Cronin about the new exhibit she curated at the Driehaus Museum. It's called Glass to Garden, and it features the work of four Chicago based florists who created Tiffany inspired floral installations. Was there some type of criteria for the floral designers as far as how they approached their installations?
6: They were not able to just go wild. Um, there was, first of all, we needed to do this entire exhibition in preserved flowers. Um, preserved is a newer medium in the flower world where they take actual live flowers and preserve them, hence the name, so that they can kind of last for very long amounts of time. Because it's a museum, because it's a historic mansion, because of all of the things, um, this was sort of the only medium in real flowers that we could work in. We I suppose could have done silks, but this was As far as like actual natural elements, it was the only medium you can work in because you don't need water, you don't need sunlight, you don't need any of the things that either plants or fresh-cut flowers need. And so that was the first parameter. The second was that they just had to pull their inspiration from the pieces that they were given. And then there was about a million other parameters, just again based on it being in a historic mansion.
0: Are there challenges with working in preserved flowers? There's obviously benefits that you just alluded to
6: they are harder to get they're often more expensive Um, They're, I don't know, they can sometimes be harder to work with because they're quite fragile. Fresh flowers I think people think are much more fragile than they are. If you watch a florist handle fresh flowers, they're just like whipping them in every direction and like, you know, preserves because they've often been like bleached before they were dyed whatever colors they are. They can be quite brittle, they can be quite sharp, (laughs) it just depends. So yeah, there's a bunch of challenges
0: so then the the florists go to work and then are you curating their pieces or how are you
6: yeah well all along we we got together each of us uh, individually myself with each of the florists individually for ideation and then we would make tweaks from there there were like initial drawings and concepts Uh, after they put those together we met we made tweaks I encouraged them in different ways it was every one of them used me in a very different way I think some of them used me more than others. And I think, yeah, it was, you know, each of their visions, but some of them, I think these are all really young florists in their industry, in the industry of florals. You know, I, I don't, I think they've all been doing this for under four years and This is obviously each of their first, like, large-scale installation on this level and of this type. Um, One of them has done some installation work, some bigger installation work, but I think the whole thing was just a learning process for each of them. And for me, I mean, that's the thing I love about what i do is that i'm inspired by all four of them and i think it was such a nice conversation to you know go back and forth and make tweaks and have you thought about this and what about using this and you know there was a few times where i had to be like i'm not seeing any correlation to your tiffany piece like we've got to bring that in and i think when you're new at your art when you're new at your practice um sometimes i think you can A, come in with like a big idea like, oh, I've been thinking about this for so long and then try to apply it to the situation you're in and it doesn't always work. Or B, you can be so scared to like, that you just like kind of want to play it safe and you just are like worried about how you're going to do it and if you can do it in the time frame and in the budget and all of that. And I, I think that having... You know, a curator along for the ride who's been in, uh, doing this for over 25 years with flowers. Um, yeah, just made it, I think, a sweeter, a sweeter experience for all of us.
0: John Caleb Pendleton is one of the floral designers who created an installation for the exhibit. Cronin says his piece drew inspiration from multiple sources, including the Tiffany lamp he was assigned, his own background, and the history of the Driehaus Museum's home, the Nickerson Mansion.
6: He drew inspiration from his own cultural background, from the history of the mansion, and from that lamp. He literally used preserved pomegranates, and his lamp is the Tiffany pomegranate lamp. And so, yeah, he really... He really this is for sure m- the, my favorite thing that John Caleb's ever done and we've gotten close over the years. He was on my advisory board for the Black Florist Fund and you know we've just become friends over the years and this was a real pleasure to watch him sort of hone his his artistic practice in
0: a new way. At the beginning we talked about this idea of bringing flowers into the into museum settings and bringing down some walls do you have hopes for what visitors are taking away from the exhibit
6: yeah i think this entire time my number one hope is that people see flowers differently you know for years people walk into my store where i've probably worked like 80 hours that week and like my back and my hands are breaking and hurt and they say things like oh Someday when I have free time, I want to be a florist and play with flowers all day, and it literally <laughs> makes. I mean, you say that to a florist, and if you catch them on the right day, it's not going to be cute, because it is, like, grueling, backbreaking work, first of all. It's very labor-intensive. It's a super physical job, and also, it's an art practice, like— It's not a craft. This isn't like a hobby. It is for some people. But when you're an actual florist, one of my business partners, Adina, always loves to say, yes, it says florist on my tax return. So that's actually my career. Like it's not my hobby. And I think people just think, oh, playing with flowers. They use that language a lot. And while that is possible and sometimes a thing. Like if you are a florist for a living and an artist in that capacity, like it deserves to be taken so much more seriously than than it is, you know?
0: What's next up for you? Do you think you're gonna try to do something like this ever again?
6: Oh, absolutely. Please. Yes. I would love to do more of this. And I to be to be really honest, I got like a little jealous of the florists no. <laughs> while they were doing it. Cause I was like, Oh, I mm-hmm. wanna do that too. Um, but you know, I it was really important to give some young in again, young in the industry, younger florists, um, just, like, the opportunity to, to to do this. It's so cool. And they're all really, you know, the Drie House is such a historic, it's gilded era. It's, like, you know, got all the historic mansion vibes, and each one of them is so modern with their floral practice that I thought that that was... Just a really fun piece of it, um, just to see what it would look like to take like a hyper-modern version of floristry, both with the florists themselves and the preserved materials, and turn it and, and, and you know, infuse the Driehaus Museum with that.
0: That's Elizabeth Cronin. She's the curator of the Driehaus Museum's new exhibit, Glass to Garden, Tiffany Inspired Floral Designs. It's on display through January 7th. You can find more information at drehousemuseum.org. One
1: bourbon, one scotch, and
2: one bill. One bourbon, one
0: scotch. you're tuned into the arts section, I'm Gary Zydek. Chicago has seemingly always appreciated a stiff drink. The city's connection to alcohol is undeniable. Even before Chicago was officially incorporated, the area's first official business is believed to have been a tavern. Decades later, Prohibition didn't do much to stop the drinks from flowing. A new book from local historian David Witter takes a closer look at the city's connection to harder alcohol. The book, Distilled in Chicago, reveals an intriguing history of colorful characters and little-known businesses. I caught up with Witter to talk about Chicago's spirited history. So let's start at the, the beginning. You've, you've written books before that usually have to do with, with history. This one has kind of a, a niche. What made you want to write a book about the history of distilleries in Chicago?
3: Well, you know, I've been writing about Chicago and Chicago history for 20, 25 years. And alcohol has always played such a major part in the identity of the city. Chicago, it seemed to be a little more prominent and concentrated. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood where most, like most people in Chicago, there's like six bars within two blocks. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's always been a part of our culture and our, our Chicago's identity. For you also, there's even
0: a, a deeper personal connection. Uh, you write in the preface, the introduction, that uh, your grandfather operated a, a tavern in Gary.
3: Yeah, he owned a tavern in Gary. Um It was during the, let's say, the 40s, 50s, and 60s probably, early 70s, and yeah, and as a child, I would stay, live with my grandparents, or stay with them like most many people do, and in his basement, he had a storage area, and I would wander around the basement uh, looking for things, and then um, I discovered that he had this this little cordon-off area, and it was locked and then one day the lock was unlocked so i went in there and i found all these pint and half pint bottles of basically we'd call cheap cheap brandy schnapps palinkavok all these liquors now i'm of a lithuanian background my grandfather owned the Kaunas Tavern, which is a, is a city in Lithuania. And so he, you know, the Eastern Europeans in general, in Gary, South Chicago, North Chicago, they enjoyed, these are liquors more or less from their home k- culture, the schnapps, the schlivavits, the, the brandies. So he sold these.
0: And you referenced, you know, growing up in a neighborhood with a bunch of taverns. And when I think of, uh, you know, those neighborhood taverns and. uh, Chicago, I think of like the neon beer signs of like the old style or Miller in chapter one is titled the Chicago was a, a town that made beer, not whiskey. Um, and you get into it in the in the chapter, but maybe you can give me the the Cliff Notes version. Why is that? Why was Chicago such a beer town?
3: You know, when Koval opened up in 2008, it was the first distillery that had been in Chicago for at least 100 years. There are many reasons for this. Um, first of all, yes, Chicago was a beer town. Our first wave of immigrants were uh, German and Irish. The Germans actually kind of revolutionized uh, brewing in America by bringing lager beer and their, their ability to make lager beer. And so, a lot of, you know, Schoenhoff, and there's a lot of, there's still a, a, a brewery school downtown um, on Green Street that, that, that has trained many of the master brewers in the country for almost the last century. And we had Germans and Irish, so Chicago made a lot of beer. Um, and it was, there was no, you have to remember, there was no refrigeration. We didn't have uh, Coke or juices or Sprite. People drank either water or you know spirits that would kind of last ciders, hard ciders, beers. There was, of course, whiskey and things that were distilled in Chicago. And then about the 1880s, 18, even before that, you had the Whiskey Trust, which was located in Peoria, which is, I think, one of the more original aspects of my book. I don't think a lot of people know about this, but... Basically, it's the same, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, you know, the Carnegies had steel, Rockefellers had oil. A lot of these unknown sort of faceless uh, industrial people, rich people, got together and decided that they were going to make all the whiskey in Peoria, much of the whiskey in the entire country. Um, Peoria was located on the Illinois River, it had river transportation, railroads near Chicago, Peoria, corn in the farms in the area, oak trees, wood to make the, the barrels. And so from about 1880 to 1920, as much as 40% of the entire nation's whiskey supply was made in Peoria, it was controlled by the Whiskey Trust. And there were a few distilleries in Chicago, but they were just almost a combination between organized crime and big business where they, they bought some out, they priced them out, they would open a whiskey store and undersell them until they went out of business. And there were even a couple examples where they were forced out forcefully dynamite or threats, but basically the distilleries were all gone in Chicago by, you know, 1890.
0: A lot of uh, recognizable names pop up in, in the book in different contexts. One uh, colorful character that, that pops up that I knew of because of the famous Frank Sinatra song, uh, Chicago. You write a lot about Billy Sunday
1: the town of Billy Sunday could not
3: shut down. Yeah, Billy Sunday was a colorful character. He started out playing with the Chicago White Stockings. He was actually an all-star baseball player, and he was fairly well-known, uh, even that day. And I guess one day he was with his teammates uh, on the near south side, and uh, they would drink after the game and, and corrals, like baseball players, like a lot of men do. And the people from the Pacific Garden Mission, which is still there, it's been. It was in the South Loop. Uh, now it's a little further south on so like 13th and Canal. But it's been there since the 1870s. They came and approached him and gave him the sermon, and he he transformed and he became the nation's leading preacher. He became sort of the forerunner to Billy Graham or many of these people now that are on these these religious television stations. Uh, he was just a huge celebrity. He traveled the country in tent revival. He was making uh, the equivalent of $100,000 a year, attracting 5,000, 10,000 people for his shows. He advised presidents, uh, the Republican presidents, Coolidge, Harding, during the 1920s. He was very much like the foreigner to Billy Graham, very charismatic, and, and his main sermon was anti-liquor, so he was one of the main forces behind Prohibition.
0: He was based in Chicago. Yeah,
3: yeah. He traveled around, but he's buried in uh, Forest, Forest Lawn Cemetery, I believe. So he's, he was based here, yeah.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking in studio with author David Witter about his new book, Distilled in Chicago, A History. What impact did Prohibition have on Chicago?
3: Well, obviously, it uh, it unfortunately changed the city forever. Our identity is still tied to the Prohibition gangsters, Al Capone, and so forth, Uh, We've been recently kind of celebrating as Michael Jordan's 60th birthday or something like that. He he eclipsed Al Capone for a short time, but I think now it's back to Al Capone. We have gangster tours and gangster movies, and there must be a series or movie coming out. And actually, the, the it's a little bit featured in the book, Jim, Big Jim Colissimo and he sort of ran the Levy District, which was the precursor to uh, all of our organized crime. The Levy District was... Uh, just south of downtown along Clark Street and about the 20th Suramac, now it's called Surmac 14th Archer, Clark, Wabash, and it was just a, a very large district devoted entirely to vice. Prostitution was the first lure but drinking was the second and Calissimo was the, he was the man who eventually ran, not ran that area, but he was the more, more, most wealthy and prestigious person who was involved in the, the prostitution and the gambling and the things of that nature and Johnny Torrio who was a uh, Calisimo's sort of right-hand man or advisor very smart very much almost like Meyer Lansky in about 1918 he saw prohibition coming down the pike and he said this is this is going to be the way we make our money because people are going to want liquor so let's just let, let me take some money out of the till, and we'll start buying breweries and make ways to bootleg whiskey. Colissimo was against that, apparently. He thought, we'll just stick with the gambling and the prostitution. This, this prohibition stuff is going to be a waste of money. So he was eventually probably assassinated for his unwillingness to put the resources of what was the fledging Chicago gang into making alcohol. And then Capone, who was much more bloodthirsty, much more aggressive, he took over. I, I suspect around 1921 these things this is not like these people signed contracts and you know announced in the newspapers, but he took over. And then you know, Al Capone was making you know the equivalent of of, of tens of millions of dollars a year. Uh, it is height mostly on bootleg liquor,
0: yeah, and what's yeah really fascinating what you've already referenced, you talk about contemporary times and koval distillery it's hard to believe that that's really the first distiller to open in chicago for for such a long time and that that was 2008
3: yeah i mean the Kovals a very interesting story they're very much featured in the book when when they opened the thought of opening in 2007 there was absolutely no laws there was no there was no there was no laws there was no way to get permits because there was no permit process it, they, they just com- they just completely opened a new industry and sonnet who who was the uh, The owner, the co-owner with her husband, she ended up going to Springfield. She tells these stories about being pregnant, driving to Springfield back and forth to get this bill through. And there's a local alderman, Greg Harris, who was a prominent uh, state representative who just retired. Uh, He worked with them. But basically they first had to get one to open a distillery, then to sell on site and then to bottle, and then to sell throughout the city, and then to sell throughout the nation, and all this had just, all this law had to just be perfectly written from scratch.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And now, since then, there's uh, there's been a number of distilleries that have opened up.
3: Yeah, a few, which is, it's interesting because Frances Willard, who was uh, sort of the, actually much more effective than Billy Sunday in, in the, she was head of the Women Christians Temperance Movement located in Evanston. and. Um, you know, Sunday kind of got all the press, but uh, Frances Willard did a lot of uh, work behind the scenes to uh, push for uh, temperance and eventually prohibition, which she didn't see. She died before that. But ironically, Few is like four blocks uh, north of, of where Frances Willard's home is where the WCTU was more or less established. And then, you know, I kind of end the book with there's a place called Wolf Point Distillery, which is in the Fulton Market area, and it almost becomes full circle because the city started with the men meeting to drink whiskey at Wolf Point, tired, cold, hungry trappers. And, uh, so, so Wolf Point whiskey or Wolf Point distillery kind of reenacts this tradition and their label is a, is a a bonfire with a wolf. And so almost, you see almost native American like teepees or a fire in the background, some kind of distant thing. And, uh, so it, it almost has come full circle where Chicago, uh, began more or less, because men met because they wanted to drink spirits and eat and also rest. And then now we're kind of gotten back to that where, you know, after a hundred year or so uh, more absence, we're we're making distilled spirits again. And it's become kind of a mini, mini industry. It'll never be a giant industry, but it's sort of a mini industry.
0: Right. Of course, you mentioned uh that. chicago and spirits to some people and the first thing they'll think of is malort
3: where does malort fit in the the history malort fits in um you know i I kind of i it's not it was never officially I say there wasn't a distillery in chicago for 100 years they did make malort it was on it was on such a low-key effort basically malort was was began by by mr jepson who was an immigrant from sweden um malort is a derivative of, of they call it Basque or Basque, it's a, it's a Swedish word that I can't pronounce, but it's a very popular liqueur in, in Sweden made out of, uh, wormwood. And he came here and he was selling cigars and he sort of, as a side, he started making this, this liqueur probably in his garage or basement for the, the local Swedes in Andersonville. He lived in Andersonville, which is, you know, Broadway, Lawrence area. And, uh, th- there's a, one of the stories, whether it's true or not. Uh, he he made a lot of money during the Great Depression because he would sell door to door out of a suitcase, and the police stopped him. He told the police officer it was medicine. The police officer opened the bottle and drank. He said, "Yeah, this is definitely medicine." <laughs> and go go back to the drugstore. So he was able to sell during Prohibition, and then a man named Brody bought it, who was a lawyer, you know, and he did it kind of as a hobby. So it was very very. Malort was very. Just almost like a mom and pod neighborhood or you know outfit until maybe ten years ago oh yeah yeah I mean it was just, it was just almost hand hand delivered by van to local <laughs> taverns and that kind of thing. Brody uh, eventually just basically gave the business to his secretary. He was a lawyer and he had you know so he gave it to his secretary who um, I interviewed her. she lived on uh, Sheridan in Belmont and she ran the company during like the 80s, 90s, and then uh, it, that's when it sort of had its boom. Yeah. And in, in college, kids started drinking it, and, uh, you know, it became sort of a cult liquor first. It was first with tradesmen, and I actually would drink it. I had friends that I grew up with that were tradesmen, and I, I actually like it, and I would drink it. And uh, But then the hipsters sort of caught on to it, <laughs> and now it's, it's become the hipster liqueur. And I actually saw the Rolling Stones, as 100,000 other people have, a couple of years ago at Soldier Field, and Mick Jagger walked out on stage. He said, "I've been to Chicago 39 times, and I haven't had an Italian beef for a lord." I guess he's not doing it right. So, so it's it has cachet, yeah. Mick Jagger, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I was gonna ask what your personal opinion is, but it sounds like you like it.
3: Yeah, I do, and I actually, I, I maybe it's me. I don't think it's bad. Probably growing up in my grandfather's house, having all those spirits in the basement, but I, I don't, I don't wince or anything of that nature. You know, I, it's it's fine. I don't,
0: Um, I wouldn't say I ever crave it, but yeah, I don't think it's as bad. It has this reputation of of being bad tasting. I think it tastes like alcohol. It has a distinct flavor.
3: Real different. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's nothing at all like it. I mean, it's not like any whiskey or anything like it. It's completely unique.
0: Well, David, I enjoyed learning a lot about this stuff and thanks for coming in to, to talk to me about it.
3: I enjoy your show very much. You cover such a wide array of of artists in the arts and things in the city that that no other, very few other entities uh, tread upon. So it's always something different.
0: I appreciate it. And now you're you're part of it. David, thanks so much. Thank you.
3: That's David Anthony Witter. His book,
0: Distilled in Chicago, is out now. You can find more info at DavidWitterChicago.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features of the show available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM For another edition of the art section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy some of these unseasonably warm temps. Thanks for listening.